Hello, and welcome back to Art and, Mount Holyoke College Art Museum's student-run podcast that discusses not just the art on the walls, but its interdisciplinary connections. My name is Molly Woolforth, and I'm a student guide and curatorial intern here at the museum. And in this episode, I'm joined by Walter Denny, Professor of Art History at UMass Amherst, and Kendra Weisbin, Associate Curator of Education at MHCAM, as we discuss a Turkmen wedding camel trapping on view in major themes celebrating 10 years of teaching with art. Join us as we consider what this carpet can teach about the lives of the women who made it, and how Kendra and Professor Denny have used carpets as a powerful teaching tool both in the classroom and in the gallery. I'm joined in the galleries today by uh, UMass professor Walter Denny and Kendra Weisspin, um, who works in our education department at the museum. Um, and we're seated in the uh, Major Themes Teaching with Art exhibition, looking at a 19th century Turkmen wedding camel trapping. Um, so a first question for both of you. What are some of the defining features of this rug that make it unique from other carpets? And how might it have been used in its sort of original context? This is a very small carpet, about a little over four feet wide and less than three feet high. And what makes it unusual right off the bat is that instead of being square, as we usually expect, or rectangular, as we usually expect a carpet to be, it's pentagonal in shape. It has a gable at the top, and it also has a group of tassels hanging down at the bottom. Because this carpet, although it's a knotted pile carpet, just like thousands of carpets produced in the Middle East that were used on floors was not intended to be used on the floor at all but to decorate a wedding camel. The camel uh, that it serves as sort of in a, in a Turkmen wedding in Central Asia which serves the equivalent of a stretch limousine to take the bride from her father's tent to her new husband's tent after getting married and this camel would be decorated on either side by this peculiar looking hanging, which, whose tassels would sway back and forth as the camel moved. And it would be, uh, the, the objects themselves would almost in every case, we think, have been woven by the bride-to-be herself as part of her trousseau. And then, I mean, there are things that make this very unique to, to Turkmen weaving, and then there are things that connect it to, um, to weaving traditions throughout the Islamic world, like the fact that you know, it uses um, a knot type that you see in carpets all over the Islamic world. It uses dyes, natural dyes, matter, and undyed natural wool, and weld, and indigo that you see in carpets all over the Islamic world. So there are many things that make it unique, and then, of course, some things that tie it to, um, to a larger tradition of weaving. So Walter, this is actually a work that you donated to the museum's collection yourself. Um, so sort of as a, both a scholar and a collector, I'm interested to know what drew your attention to this rug um, when you first saw it. I've been trying to remember since it was such a long time <laughs> since I acquired this piece. When did you acquire the piece? Uh, in the late 60s, I was a graduate student in Cambridge. And I read in a newspaper ad that an elderly gentleman in Swampscott, Massachusetts was disposing of some carpets he had collected and uh, went up on a Saturday to Swampscott and was amazed to see this uh, hanging, largely amazed because it was in such magnificent condition with most of its, uh, most of its tassels still intact, one of its original hanging uh, strips still intact. 
uh, and uh, even more amazed when I found out that I could afford it, which was uh, quite something that was a little bit uh, iffy back in those days. And so I acquired it immediately and held on to it for a very long time uh, and then began to, after having, since I've known Kendra for many years and since we have a long history that goes back in rugs and rug scholarship and rug collection surveys, beginning with, uh, with uh, the Brooklyn Museum when she was still an undergraduate uh, on a summer internship and moving through the U University of Massachusetts master's program, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and now Mount Holyoke, it seemed like a very good idea to, uh, since I knew what some of her aims were about Holyoke, it seemed like a great idea to part with this piece and put it someplace where Kendra could make it into something really important as part of the museum's teaching mission and where it would look very nice hanging on the wall, <laughs> as indeed it does. You mentioned before that um, likely this work would have been made by the bride um, herself to go into her wedding trousseau. Um, so what would have been the process of making a work like this, particularly in her tribal setting? In the, in the tribal setting where she worked, the loom she, she worked on was most likely going to lie flat on the ground rather than being a vertical loom, which means that as she wove the carpet, she was going to be sitting on the part that she'd already woven. This is a hard way of doing things, but when you don't have a lot of furniture and in a Turkmen tent because you're constantly moving from pasture to pasture as your sheep require to grass to, to graze on, uh, you don't uh, have the luxury of a very complicated loom. So this was the, the pile weaving technique uh, is very much, it, it produces designs in the very same way that the pixels in a digital photograph produce an image. Each motif in the carpet is composed of countless numbers of individual little knots of, uh, of wool that are tied on two warps across in a single line across the uh, loom. Once they're completed, the weft is shot back and forth a couple of times and then another row of knots is tied all the way across. One might say that this, uh, that this is an extremely labor-intensive and probably on some levels a rather boring occupation for the young woman who made this. But on the other hand, uh, this art form is the very essence of Turkmen artistry and the art of the carpet not only uh, is part of socialization of young women who are responsible for carpet weaving, but the works that are created are the real emblems, the real, the real tangible, uh, iconic visualization of the individuality of a particular tribe and sub-tribal group. Sort of a, a national flag and a, and, a, uh, and a logo all rolled into one. The um, one thing I learned from Walter doing carpet surveys with him is that Turkmen weaving is unbelievably tightly knotted, that the weavers um, in, in those regions are incredibly technically proficient, and the knot count per square inch kind of rivals um, even Persian court carpet. So the, just the level of skill is really incredible that these women had. Thinking about this, this carpet as a product of nomadic tradition and one that's sort of tied in with the materials available in particular places, what effect did, would place sort of have on the design or the overall appearance of this carpet, sort of in terms of maybe resources or even just aesthetic? Place, as a determinant, would have, would of course, the first thing would be that we're in a semi-desert area, it's quite arid, 
and you have to keep moving your flocks around. Therefore, the place dictates the fact that nomadic society is flourishing there. That's one thing. Another thing is the overwhelming use of red in Turkmen carpets is due to the fact that the matter root, and it's a common weed that's found across Asia and North Africa, that the matter root is uh, the most abundant dye stuff available. The blues had to be imported. They had to go to a town and buy the indigo uh, at, a, uh, at a bazaar in the town. And the way that they got cash to do this, of course, was by selling carpets. Uh, that was their cash crop, as well as, well as, selling, the, uh, as selling the leather, the uh, wool, and the meat, uh, and the milk of the, uh, the sheep that they herded. Uh, beyond, beyond that, though, the design itself is not so much a function of place, aside from the overall layout, that, uh, it's, uh, it's a very definite function of the particular tribal group and the particular sub-tribal group. These carpets are highly individualized according to the clan or the family in which they're created, and they serve to define that clan and that family visually in many different ways. Walter mentioned uh, flags before that these are, they become like emblems in a really true sense, and even the current flag of Turkmenistan has the, the ghouls, meaning the tribal motifs of um, most commonly seen in Turkmen carpets on it. When I first encountered that flag, I was traveling down Fifth Avenue on a bus in New York City, and I looked out the window at the, fla at the Plaza Hotel, which generally flies the flags of any ambassadors of any foreign countries that, uh, that may be staying at the plaza at any given time. And I, oddly enough, never encountered the Turkmen flag before then, and then I looked over there, and uh, I had just spent uh, an entire day at the Metropolitan sorting out Turkmen carpets in their collections, and there was this strange <laughs> banner with these tribal emblems of the five tribes that make the base, that, uh, that form the largest elements of the population of today's uh, Republic of Turkmenistan. Walter, can we go back to the process? I always get asked by students how long it would take for a weaving like this to be created, and I, I actually don't know the answer to that. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. This is a question that I get asked, obviously, yeah. a million times. The two most frequent <laughs> questions after giving some wonderful talk about the artistry of Turkmen rugs are, where can I wash my grandmother's rugs? <laughs> how long did it take them to make these things? We have to understand that this is the these are the products of women weavers and that in any traditional society women not only weave carpets but they cook, they raise children and they do most of the stoop labor while their husbands are sitting in the coffee house talking politics. So uh, you can attempt to compute an amount of time necessary for the weaving of a rug like this in strictly mathematical terms. A very skilled weaver can tie, let's say, consistently over a fairly long period of time, around 20 knots a minute. Uh, and uh, that is a knot every three seconds because the knot has to be tied very quickly around two warps, pulled very sharply down on the loom, and then the end cut off with a knife. And then, of course, after an entire row has been uh, knotted across the rug, then you have to shoot the weft. So you could, you could figure it out that if, at a particular number of knots in a carpet, which you could do simply by counting them, uh, and you generally count uh, the number of knots in a, a 10 decimeter square, that means roughly, roughly four inches on a side, and then multiply that to the, by the, the total dimensions of the rug, then divide that by uh, uh, 20 to get a certain number of minutes. Uh, but the fact is that, of course, uh, these carpets were not woven straight through. Uh, a little bit was done every day. 
and it might well take uh, just to do a pair of these trappings, given all the other things that had to be done on the migrations uh, in the in the summer, which is when these, or even early in the fall when these. Uh, when this weaving was usually done. Uh, it would probably have taken overall, in, in, in exact terms, I don't know, several hundred hours, but certainly quite a long time because it's not a constant activity. It's mm -hmm. something that, because the design is well known, the weaver knows exactly what she wants to do. She's probably looking at an earlier example done by her mother that may be hanging in her own tent or on the floor next to her. Uh, so uh, I guess the, the, the answer I usually come up with when people say, how much time does it take to weave a carpet? I usually say, a lot of time. <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned that students ask these questions, Kendra, because um, that makes me sort of wonder about, particularly because it's in the Teaching with Art exhibition, um, just sort of thinking about you know, how, how have we used these works in, in classroom settings and in, in the activities at the museum here. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what made you want to put this piece within the non-human section of this exhibition, what made you want to put it in the exhibition at all, mm -hmm. um, and sort of how you see it connecting to some of the other objects that are in the non-human section of the exhibition. Sure. Um, so I have to, uh, maybe we'll go back a little bit. Um, I have to admit, this was going to go on view no matter what. Um, <laughs> somewhere in the museum this was going on view. That's so. <laughs> something that anybody who gives something to a museum loves to hear. It's going to be shown no matter what. Yeah. Um, so um, even before we actually came up with, so we had we had um, this. We're in the Weissman Gallery right now, and um, before we actually came up with the idea of um, doing a teaching with art exhibition celebrating ten years of our teaching with art program, um, we myself and um, three other curators were sort of batting around ideas of actually what to do with this space. And in that brainstorming process, we actually um, kind of started compiling a document with the things that we really wanted to see on view, um, like the, the major things. So our Dorothea Tanning painting was on that list. Basmalek, the camel trapping was also on that list. Um, so when I said it was going on view no matter what, it really was, was <laughs> So it was foundational to even the idea of having an exhibition like this, as many other things in this in this gallery were. Um, you know, what are the things we teach with? What do we want to show the public? That was sort of what we were asking ourselves. Um, in terms of the non-human, the the phrase the, the non-human comes from an English um, course taught here by um, Professor Elizabeth Young, um, and she has used many of these objects in her teaching. Um, but we wanted to broaden the scope of what that means a little bit and think about how we define what it means to be human sort of against what it means to not be human, but also think about um, not just animals, but also machines, monsters, all of these things. Um, but you'll notice a lot of the things in this section do deal mostly with animals. Um, and I was really interested that this felt like a natural um, natural section for the camel trapping um, because of its function as a camel trapping. Um, it could have um, as easily gone into the afterlives of objects, right? These, these objects have amazing histories. They're used, they're woven for a specific purpose and they're displayed um, usually in the tent of, of the woman who wove it. Um, but then they're collected and um, stored and then they come to museums. So they, they have these amazing histories as well which you can um, explore. Um, so it could have been in other sections as well, but ultimately um, it came to the, the non-human section of this exhibition um, 
as sort of a really concrete example of of humans' relationship with animal relationships with animals. Um, in Turpin society, the animals are. I mean, to say that they're essential would be sort of underselling it, right? Um, it's, you know, their livelihood, um, their artistry, right? All of this is is around their flocks. So I was interested in the fact this, that this would have been used on a wedding camel, but also the fact that it was woven from wool, taken from sheep that would have been owned by the people who made this. So it's all sort of happening in this this small sphere. The wool is being carded by the same people, being dyed by the same people that own the sheep. I think to, to wrap up our conversation, I want to sort of build upon that question of sort of how it came to be um, displayed in this section and in this exhibition to think about how you both have worked with carpets in your own teaching practices. Um, particularly Professor Denny as, as a professor and then Kendra as someone who works with carpets in a museum space. Um, and you know how how those things have impacted the ways that you you look at the objects or or see the objects fitting within your disciplines. Well, for my part, uh, one of the things that I find most significant about carpets, in my own way of thinking, is that a surprisingly small number of people in my field, the history of Islamic art, pay the remotest attention to carpets at all, which is rather peculiar because the carpet is. All things considered, not only the most iconic and individual form of the Mount Pal carpet of Islamic art, but it is also the most widely diffused type of Islamic artifact, since it's found all over the world, but especially in North America. My first experience with carpets, oddly enough, was with it a, was a very peculiar little exhibition of Turkmen carpets from Boston area collections held in Cambridge in the summer of 1966. And I have to say that my aesthetic reaction to these things just, just blew me off my feet. And ever since that time, I found them just so fascinating and so beautiful. And they appeal not only to your sense of, of your visual sense, but uh, as a museum person or as a collector, you get to touch them as well, which is an important part of their appeal. Uh, what it does is it, it broadens your notions of what art is. And uh, the, the fixation on painting, sculpture, and architecture that has uh, shackled art history in the West ever since the time of Vasari, Michelangelo's biographer, who of course was very much interested in the types of art that his, the subject of his biography did, uh, to the exclusion of all other kinds, which were thought of as inferior or lesser or minor arts. Uh, it's very liberating. Carpets for me were very liberating and that that was my first real taste of how art can be not only uh, in media that we ordinarily might not pay attention to, but that some of the greatest art can be created by, in this case, by women who had no formal education in the arts, but who learned everything they knew about art from their older sisters, from their mothers, from their grandmothers and their aunts, and then added their own individuality to this tradition in every object they created. I mean, I, yeah, I, I've learned so much about, I've learned everything I know about carpets from, um, from Walter, so, and he instilled in me a, a real love, real love of, of carpets. Um, and so I kind of take it seriously when I, when I present carpets to other people because I feel sort of the weight of that I want to make them love <laughs> love carpets as much as and much as Walter made me love carpets. Um, and but 
it's interesting um, teaching with rugs at a museum as opposed to you know in a classroom because um, I find more and more that um, I'm not I'm not talking about um, Islamic art more broadly, but rather using carpets as sort of a way into different kinds of thinking. So. I've used this since it's been in the collection only only about a year. A year. I've used it um, multiple times in anthropology and archaeology classes. Specifically, Professor Elizabeth Claridge has used this a few times um, to have her students think about archaeological approaches to technology um, and uh, carpet weaving as as technology. Um, so that's been really interesting because ultimately it doesn't really matter that it's a Turkmen carpet. It sort of matters how it's made, and so it's really interesting for me to sort of see it through through the eyes of different disciplines. I also use this carpet um, and other carpets to do close looking. So observational, inquiry-based mode of interacting with an object in which you really slow down and kind of stretch the limits of your visual vocabulary. And it's incredibly helpful for students thinking about analytical skills, critical thinking, um, observational skills, obviously. And so I've just, just last week actually looked at this with um, my group of student guides here at Mount Holyoke. And this was, you know, after a year of doing close looking with mostly paintings and some sculpture, but really mostly figural, I would say even all figural art. And when we first sat down with this, they all looked a little terrified. And I told them, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna stretch <laughs> the limits of our visual vocabulary and I had them go basically row by row um, ha having them really describe in detail what they were seeing and it's difficult it's actually really difficult to describe what you're seeing when there are very few concrete figural you can't you can't make necessarily um, easy representational associations I guess with what you're seeing um, but I think it really, it stretched them to, to consider art in that way and to think through what they were seeing. Um, and I think it's incredibly, it's an incredible opportunity to hone observational skills um, and visual vocabulary to use something like this in teaching, um, no matter what discipline students are coming from. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I think it's so fascinating. I both sort of ended um, that question on, on this point of, you know, where carpets can allow us to broaden our thinking about mm -hmm. art more generally and how, you know, it's, it's not just a, um, a tactile object, it's one right. with anthropological connections. And it's not just something you put on the wall, but it's something that has rich personal history, mm -hmm. um, particularly histories that don't get told a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's such a nice place to end our conversation about, um, about this Turkmen wedding candle dropping. Um, so thank you both so much for joining me here today. Thank you, Molly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Art Ant. Many thanks to Professor Walter Denny and Kendra Weisbin for this conversation about the history of the Turkmen wedding camel trapping and its current day importance in their teaching practices. For more information about the camel trapping, major themes celebrating 10 years of teaching with art, or to listen to more episodes of Art Ant, please visit our website at artmuseum.mtholyoke.edu. Music in this episode is by Chad Crouch via the Free Music Archive. Special thanks to MHCAM's education staff and to you for listening.